Design Aware is an internationally acclaimed interdisciplinary design studio based in Hyderabad, India, that aims to create awareness through livable, wearable, accessible, and responsible design. The firm has done so by engaging in seemingly all areas of design, be it architecture, interior design, product design, social work, and such open-ended approach has allowed them to engage well with the community through education and through socially relevant work. I am joined today by not one, but two sisters from Design Aware, Takbir Fatima and Abir Fatima. So happy to have you. And they come in firsthand to tell us that Design Aware is not just a practice, but it is rather a movement. I thought it is such a beautiful statement in itself and in its goal in bringing people together in this one movement to achieve a singer bigger goal. So thanks so much, Takbir and Abir, for joining us today. Thank you, Karina. Thank you for having us. It's my pleasure. How did it all start with you and Design Aware? This is Takbir. Uh, I'm an architect and Abir is an interior designer. So. Um, I've always wanted to be an independent practitioner um, since my undergrad years during, during my uh, bachelor's in architecture, which I was studying in, in Hyderabad in India. Uh, and then when I was doing my master's uh, at the Architectural Association in London, that's when you know, I kind of started Design Aware as a sort of passion project other than my you know, coursework. That was going on. So it was during the um, one of the w winter vacations that uh, I was using the the amazing facilities that we had there, which was the digital prototyping lab. Um, and I was alone in the studio uh, during the holidays, and I was making use of the of the lab uh, to, to just play around with the laser cutter and the CNC machine. So I started to cut different geometries in in plexiglass or fiberglass. Uh, and then and different materials, MDF, fiberglass, and different materials. And, and then I started to design wearable accessories. Um, and that's where the name sort of came, came from, Design Aware, so, because it sounds like designer wear. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. So only later when I moved to Hyderabad, uh, it, you know, it started to become a firm on its own. So rather than getting a new name, because we already had a website, and it kind of also had this um, notion of awareness built into it, so design awareness. And that's when, when I moved, uh, moved to India, that's when I started to uh, work on it as, as an independent practice or you know, a design studio. And today it's an interdisciplinary design studio uh, because we wanted to expand our horizons rather than narrowing our focus on one method or niche or discipline. We wanted to design everything from wearables to um, lighting and furniture uh, to interior spaces to architecture and large-scale urban spaces. This is Abir. I'm the lead interior designer at DesignAware. And uh, I joined DesignAware in 2016 and this was my second job after I graduated. So I wanted to be a part of DesignAware not because it was uh, a firm where the director is my sister. In fact, uh, that was very different for some reason. 
but really because of the work the firm was doing although it was just the beginning of the studio uh, the team was working on its uh, initial projects for a person who was on the outside like i was at that time i could see how different the work was and even the process of design at designerware was completely different than how other uh, firms in india used to work so the first project that i was given as soon as i joined the firm was to design the skylight for hilltop school i think it was the best start that i could ever ask for as a new member to the team and um, the fact that it was built as exactly like i had designed it after many many iterations uh, mm -hmm. it gave me the exposure to design as well as execution so and it was kind of a reassurance that i ended up making the right decision of uh, joining designerware wait so you were saying earlier that you saw it different than how other firms practice architecture or design so is it the case where your intent and the actual product were so close together or that you were able to experience the immediate connection between the two or how is it different it's mainly the process of working uh, at designer where we work in 3d usually other firms don't think in 3d as much as we do at designer where and we start by making the model so we know when when we're building it the reason why it's so similar to how we design it is because first we design in 3d and second we make it ourselves and so we are able to tell the fabricator as to how each thing sits with the other so um yeah we're really um focused on fabrication and figuring out how things are made so if we do we design anything um it's done using multiple iterations and we might use many different methods and many different materials um to you know realize what we're designing so if we design digitally then in analog or in physical modeling we try to reverse engineer that and and try to make um, you know make a replica or make a different iteration using physical modeling and then also when it comes to physical model uh, making or prototyping we like to do it in many different scales so we might do it in you know smaller scales we might do it in uh, a, a full scale like one is to one prototype of the actual thing and then we might do a prototype which is in the actual material as well so that whole process is kind of rigorous and it's kind of it's fun for us too because we were exploring the different materials and different methods nice yeah very nice i think these days with the existence of many middlemen and technology you know it is easy to be distant from the end product and i think we are seeing more and more cases like this where the designer is isolated from the making process right so i think it's great that you highlight that hands-on approach in your firm to making and to designing so from the beginning I've said time to time again that we really appreciate your taking design not in the traditional practice way but it as a movement or through is as if looking design through an activism point of view can you tell us more about it mm -hmm. yeah um I, I set up my firm about six years ago uh, and at the time I strongly believed that we need to have a certain set of guiding principles 
that should determine the kind of work that we do and the direction that we take. And also the work that we don't do is, is very important as well. So similar to the life decisions that we take uh, about what we will and won't do in our lives, we must also be clear about the work that we will or won't do. So today that's become even more relevant because of the, I think, um, the political climate around us. And also we see uh, a lot of corporates struggling with resolving the, you know, the kind of cognitive dissonance that comes from, uh, you know, delivering good products or services. And yet there are some skeletons in the supply chain or in the, in the way that things are the place that they're sourced from or the way uh, the labor is is treated or used so that that both of those have to be on the same page at one point you're thinking about changing the world and making the world a better place but at the same time um, how you get to that the the end doesn't always justify the means so the means right. of getting there um, that I think you have to be very intentional about um, and also I think we all uh, have to be focused on where our material comes from, uh, do we have sustainable resources, how do we you know, compensate labor or workers, um, how our decisions or our actions impact people, culture, heritage, the environment, and whether we can stand by the design decisions and what kind of culture we're designing also within the studio. So the kind of culture that we're creating within the studio, the environment, um, of, of, you know, the sort of family culture that we have during within the studio that also matters quite a lot the way that we treat each other. Right. And also, um, we were really aiming, uh, when we started Design Aware, right at the beginning, we were aiming to make design more accessible because what we saw at the time was that design seemed to be kind of exclusive and elitist and sort of, you know, exclusionary. Uh, and it's sort of excluding a lot of different strata of society. And so we wanted to make design more accessible in every way. It could be affordable, more affordable, relatable, um, usable. It should be sustainable and uh, accessible to people who have different needs and requirements. So uh, it shouldn't be the privilege of a select uh, few members of society, but it should be within reach of everyone. That was our aim. And, and it's actually not true that design has to be elitist or it has to be exclusionary. If good design is universally available, it's actually invisible. And that's what makes it even better. Right. So with doing many things within design, what do you see to be the recurring topics? So I think uh, we've outlined certain laws for ourselves, such as not cutting down existing trees or damaging the existing terrain on site, even though it may be more challenging for us to work around, uh, many times you fought to be able to stick to these principles. So um, more than a business, we see that design aware is a movement to raise awareness about design and be aware and intentional about our actions. So I think the main issue that we face is with convincing the client or the builder to not uh, cut down trees or to um, work with the existing terrain of uh, the site because as Tegbir said earlier uh, these are some of the laws that or the rules that we've set up for our firm and we abide by them no matter how difficult they make they make our work. We've designed the Hilltop School uh, where we've stayed strong on the rule of not not touching the terrain um, I think that we can elaborate on that. 
Yeah, um, it, that was a very difficult kind of project for us. It was a really challenging project in the sense that it wasn't just about the terrain, it was uh, because the, the site itself, if I, if I could just explain a little bit about the, um, the existing site, it was um, on top of a hill uh, in, inside the Golconda Fort. So the Golconda Fort in Hyderabad is about 800 years, more than 800 years old. And it's built on a mountain top, which is, which is covered with sheet rock. This forms part of the Deccan Plateau uh, region in India, in, in South Central India. Uh, so it's covered with um, sheet rock, which is granite, uh, which is more than 250 million years old. And so it, on one hand, we had to uh, sort of preserve the terrain on site and we had to preserve the rock and not blast any of the rock or break any of the rock because we were preserving the natural, you know, existing sheet rock or existing sort of natural heritage. But at the same time, we are within, uh, the context is within a fort and a settlement which dates back 800 years old. So we had to preserve also the culture and the context uh, and also, you know, be respectful of the fort where we were uh, we're inhabiting the fort. So, and plus we have all these existing trees. So this is kind of a recurring uh, sort of, you know, um, theme where we have to preserve the trees yeah. in every project that we get. Um, we're working on this uh, tiny residential space. It's about 250 square meters uh, in area, which is pretty small. Uh, and we have a neem tree right in the middle of the site, which, um, made our work very difficult, but the design that came out of it is beautiful and it houses the tree. It looks like the tree was designed for the space and for the building itself, nice. but it existed even before the building uh, was designed. Yeah, so that was, I think in that project, it's really challenging for us to be able to preserve the tree because uh, a good part of the site is, being, you know, sort of taking, taken over by the tree and being shaded by the tree. So the, the area of the house, the footprint of the house becomes much smaller, but a lot of times it's about the quality of space rather than the quantity. So um, how much square footage or how much um, floor area that you're getting um, may not be as valuable as actually having a tree in the middle of, of your house and you're able to get this Kind of you know you're, you've, you've got nature inside your house and you've got um, sunlight coming in through a courtyard in the center of your house even if it's, it's a small house the that really exponentially improves the quality of life in that house rather than having a big house which doesn't uh, have a tree in it it's like so, you're getting the outdoors into your uh, house so right. you have an outdoor existing outdoor space that you're getting into your indoor space so design is essentially about problem solving, right? So we were able to create, carve out this courtyard in this particular uh, project that we were talking about. We're able to carve out a courtyard and then provide ventilation and, and sunlight through that courtyard. So that kind of solves our problem of ventilation as well as preserving the, preserving the tree. So it adds value, the tree adds value to the space rather than being an obstacle. And, and in this process, we were also able to educate our clients about the significance of our design decisions and, you know, advise them about budget and space, you know, allocation. 
So design is generally so intangible. You can't really see it and it's really difficult to measure its quality. And unfortunately, um, some clients focus more on measuring the floor area and the expenditure, but a larger floor area, as I said, doesn't necessarily mean good design or better quality of space. So, and apart from designing, you know, spaces and designing products, we also organize events and workshops uh, and awareness campaigns. So this comes under our, you know, our drive towards educating people. So. Uh, these campaigns shed that necessary light on pressing issues. So recently during the lockdown, um, back in uh, March and April, we learned that as soon as the lockdown was enforced in India, there are a lot of migrant uh, laborers, migrant workers, day laborers, uh, who have left their homes in you know, uh, their native places, which are, which are rural areas, and then they come to work in the city. But, uh, but they're mostly occupying construction sites or they're earning money uh, through daily wage work. Um, so as soon as the lockdown hit and, and all of the construction activity or any other sort of uh, sales activity was stopped, their livelihoods were frozen. Uh, and as a result, many of them lost their homes from the, from the construction site. So this really concerned us as an issue. So we decided we had already started a lecture series online called the Road Less Traveled Lecture Series. Which was, which was conducted via Zoom. And uh, we saw the opportunity initially in getting many different architects and designers from different parts of the world onto one platform. So we had nine different architects who've taken many different career paths. And so we wanted to bring, this, bring them all together uh, through a series of virtual lectures so that students and young professionals who are not yet decided about their careers, they would have the opportunity to learn and, and understand that there are many different kinds of careers rather than a sort of one track, um, you know, practicing architect narrative that is that is fed to us in school. So that was the initial um, sort of um, aim behind Road Less Traveled. But we also, when we learned about the, the you know, the migrant workers and the, the mm -hmm. issues that they were facing, this sort of became um, an online fundraising campaign where we were able to, whatever fees we raised during this lecture series, we were able to contribute that towards different organizations, volunteer organizations that were helping migrant workers or, or people who have been impacted uh, severely by the lockdown. And also some organizations which were working towards providing relief medical organizations and healthcare workers who are providing relief during the COVID-19 pandemic. So that was our um, kind of aim to run this, this campaign. And we've also been running a social media campaign that happens every year called Make Progress Possible uh, to collect funds for, for Hilltop School, the charity school that we designed. And uh, we also received um, donations from all over the world. We also received used um, children's books for the library itself. So that's a campaign that we run annually. Yeah. I think all of this really speak about your approach because the more people join in the movement, the more the word will be spread out there and the more they'll realize that design is not just one-sided or just for the 1% of the people, but it can be for everyone, of course, in different shape and form. Yeah, the, the, the key word I think is inclusivity or inclusiveness. 
and trying to get as many people um, to learn about design and, and create awareness and also get many people involved. Um, and there are, you know, um, if we behave as a, as a design studio that it's kind of just providing services, we don't necessarily engage with as many people. But when we start to create a platform or a movement, then you know the movements usually need some sort of uh, some sort of ignition point or some some sort of uh, something that kind of initiates. So we're sort of initiating certain certain campaigns and certain uh, movements, and then people join in and they're enthusiastically join in mm. because a lot of people were thinking about these issues as well. They just didn't know where to go and how to how to go about it. So we've had many people joining hands with us. Yeah, yeah, that also makes sense. You know, becoming an interdisciplinary practice because now you'll have many more touch points to get into different kinds of people. So, how has the public received it so far? I think we've had, um, you know, we we post our work on social media a lot, and so we're able to now, as opposed to how things used to be before. Um, where people were working kind of in isolation or people didn't know what was going on behind the scenes in many of the studios. Nowadays, we see that there's a lot of uh, studios and a lot of people who are making, uh, you know, making a difference or, or the kind of work that they're doing, what's the process behind it. You're able to see that because we're able, we're showing that on social media. So we are able to get feedback from people all over the world very quickly and mm -hmm. a lot of engagement. So. And we find this to be a really great engine for uh, getting people to participate and act. So as I said earlier, make, make progress possible. It started as a way to collect books for the library of the charity school. And that was absolutely necessary for these kids who come from really um, disadvantaged backgrounds where they may not have the privilege of higher education and they may not have access to books at home. Uh, because their parents may not be able to afford it or their their parents may not be as educated so they had to have a library so this movement make progress possible grew into something much bigger than what we'd imagined um, and we received donations from all over the world for you know not just for the books but also sports equipment midday meals um, and you know um, uniforms and funding and so many things and uh, not just us but many people whom we know only online. We don't. We don't really know the, these people. They've taken this cause to heart, and that is truly quite inspiring for us. Sometimes, um, all people need, especially for such charity campaigns, is a push. So you just need to show them that this is the way, and this is the path, and we are walking on this path, and you are free to join. And that's how we get a lot of donations and a lot of contribution from people they know that we are doing this personally and they uh, trust us with our campaign and that's how they're able to join us yeah i really like that using of social media because well in the perfect world these people you interact with in social media would be your end users of the space or the product you create right so in a way you get direct feedback from them yeah, because what makes a design successful is not how good looking it is or anything like that, 
although a lot of times it may look that way. <laughs> but it is about the people's opinion. It is the people who use it who determine if it's successful or not. So I think it is great that you are doing that. I think we ought to see more social media or more interaction presence in the future. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> yes, we also try to... Um like you said the users who will be one day probably using the space are giving us feedback about how we should do it so even the school that we designed we, it was really inclusive the process that was uh, that we um, adopted for that was really inclusive in that we included um, views and opinions of, of the teachers and the students and they also participated in the design process in some ways uh, some of the parts that we didn't design ourselves uh, we left them kind of open to interpretation. The the users or the students and the teachers took over those spaces and they completed the design um, just following our sort of design language that we gave them. Um, mm -hmm. And also on social media, we, we run um, a lot of polls sometimes and you know what kind of, um, we have a couple of different solutions that we can't decide between and then attribute their opinion to it. And yeah, I think it's it's really important to have that inclusiveness. We also had a lot of open source designs that were that are just available for download, and then people can just build them themselves. So we have these uh, little designs that we do that that are just posted free of cost, and they can just download and, and use them uh, in their daily lives as well. Mm. Then in real life, how has engaging in different fields enhance and complement your practice? Um, when we design, we design the products as a series. So every product has a line of its own. Um, the series, well, we don't do one type of um, product in a series. Um, a series would contain um, a piece of furniture or a piece of jewelry and a lifestyle accessory, it would be a combination of several different um, fields of design. So uh, the products could either be related to each other in terms of material used to make them or the process of fabrication or um, the process in which we design it or it could also be a combination of all three. Although there is always an overlap between the things that we design for example, um, we use laser cut um, LED fiberglass to design wearables. Then we use the same technique to design a lighting as well as a built space, a built kiosk for a business center in Rajiv Gandhi International Airport in Hyderabad. Then another example is a series that we did in bent metal rods. We designed a lifestyle, lifestyle accessory called Angular. And then uh, we did a side table, a base of a side table called recursive side table. And then we scaled it up a bit and we did a huge teacher wall in the ice cream uh, parlor that we designed. So it's the same method and sometimes the same material or the same process of design, but then it's a different, it's a different series, it's different products, but in the same line. So it's kind of a series and you see the same kind of language happening, but it's kind of it's manifesting itself in different forms. I see. Yeah, no, I, I get that repetition can act as a powerful reminder. So um, last but not least, um, through this movement, 
how do you wish people to see design now? I think traditionally, um, the idea of practicing architecture was seen as a solo pursuit. And, um, and, and I've been trying to move away from this perception, even through the Road Less Traveled series, we, we tried to raise awareness about the fact that there are so many different ways of being an architect. So the idea was, it was like a romanticized idea of an architect who was like an elite um, master designer who's working on skyscrapers or you know really large uh, gestural kind of um, designs which are which are really form driven and known as a star architect. So that maybe that's obviously a valid uh, way of being an architect. That could be one direction to take, and that's just one way of looking at architecture though. So it's it's one way, but it's not the only way. And um, even that way isn't entirely what it seems because behind that persona or the face of the star architect is actually a team, a whole support system of architects and designers mm -hmm. and engineers uh, who help make their dreams a reality. So I strongly believe in collaborations and connections and that many, many hands and many minds coming together to create a whole that is greater than the sum of its parts. So design firms, uh, we believe they should start working like startups which is how you know, we've been positioning ourselves. But startups um, you know, with clearly defined goals and principles. So architecture can't be practiced in a vacuum. Uh, there's no tabula rasa. So it's always in correlation to other factors, existing conditions, uh, context, constraints, and then history or precedent. So whatever mark we make is in addition to the marks that exist already. So whatever were made by you know, others before us. So we stand on the shoulders of giants to reach where we are today. Yeah, I do agree. I think in the startup world also, it is about nurturing an ecosystem rather than like one single company, right? So in conclusion, I think this conversation really highlights that designers are very much equipped with certain ways or certain techniques to infuse a certain language or symbolism to kind of reach goals more effectively. But we also need to understand that it is not one person succeeding alone, but rather it is everyone succeeding together. Right. I totally agree with that. Um, I think we're there's no point of one or two people kind of moving forward. It's yeah. about moving together as, as, a, as a movement. Well, I cannot end it better myself. <laughs> so thank you so much, Takbir and Abir, for your time. We really, really appreciate your being here today. Thank, thank you. you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Nice talking to you. Thank you. So nice to talk to you too.